You know, this actually shouldn't happen from behind a table with a computer and a Bible. If I had my wish, it would be to have you around my dining room table and to talk around these things because they're things that matter to me. Humorously, we preachers really only have a half a dozen to ten messages. We just tell them with different forms. And the longer you do this, so the two churches I led, both of them came to me at different times and said, Look, Chris, you always tell the same stories. Why don't we number them? Number one, number two, number three. And when you get to that point in your message where you want to tell an old story, just say number three. And then we all know what the story is and we either cry or laugh appropriately, accordingly. And uh, it's true. We have a number of messages. We have a number of stories to tell. But this little series is my request. An invitation to sit around my dining room table, which all of you can't do. And to talk around the things that matter to me as a dad. That's really what I am. More than anything else, I love being a biological dad and I love being a spiritual dad. Everything else is subservient to that. Now, I qualify that by saying, love my walk with Jesus, love my marriage to Meryl. She's not feeling well. She was going to try and get here before things ended tonight. But those are the things I love doing. But right up there is to deposit into your lives the things that matter to me. I was very privileged. I... Um, my, my father put some things into me. My spiritual father put some things into me as a new raw recruit. And then my kind of spiritual mentor as a leader put things into me. And beyond any shadow of a doubt, I am who I am, for good or bad, as a result particularly of those three men and what they've poured into me. And then Merrill has been the subtle, nuanced, persistent voice of spiritual affirmation and transformation that has helped immeasurably. So two weeks ago, in this, the beginning of this From a Father's Heart series, I spoke about a life of devotion. And the fundamental thesis is that we are who we are in direct ratio to the thing we are most devoted to. And I don't want to preach all that again. But this evening, I want to spend a little bit of time talking to you around the conversation of a life of calling. A life of calling. Many years ago, I heard a story told by Tony Campolo. Tony is a professor at, I think, Northeastern University out on the East Coast. Very articulate, humorous Italian-American. And uh, whenever I, as a young teacher, pastor guy, was just wanting to laugh a little bit, I would find a, Tem a Campolo message. And remember, it wasn't YouTube in those days. I'd have to forage around to find a cassette or something. And then I would have a good laugh. And he would make me feel decidedly normal and human and just an ordinary guy just like him. But he told this story, and I've never forgotten it. He said he had a fellow professor who worked with him at the university, had taken, I think, 12 years to get his PhD, was lecturing in a very credible college, uh, the world at his feet. Every year, sublime, capable, young uh, men and women would come through and he would pour his life into them. But one day, he arrived at the university and he resigned. Well, that wasn't that strange because that's what people do. And, um, but what he then did is a little more strange. 
because he became a postman. His mother thinking that it's probably just a phase that will come to pass, that this isn't anything lasting, began to express some concern six, seven, nine months into it when he showed no sign whatsoever that he was going to change. And so she approached Tony and said, look, Tony, here's the deal. My son took 12 years to get his PhD and now he's a postman. Please, would you go and speak some sense into his head? So Tony, feeling somewhat obligated to honor that, went and met this friend of his. And he expressed his mother's concern and said, look, what's happening? And he said, you know, it's an interesting thing. He said, all the while, he said, I realized that my sense of humanness, now these are my words, but his ideas, my sense of humanness was not found in the letters behind my name, in the size of the lecture room that I would speak to on a daily basis. He said, I really cared for people, particularly the lonely and the forgotten. And he said, you know, Tony, the first day I got into my little jam and, and I drove down uh, whichever town it was and he said there was a little old lady sitting there waiting for her mail and he engaged her and she soon as would happen told him that she hasn't heard from her kids for a while and her husband of X number of years had died and one of the highlights of her day was letting the postman bring any mail to see if there was any sense of connection with other family members it was pre-Zoom and FaceTime. And he had a couple of cups of coffee with her and set off and he got a bit further and there was an old man gardening and he said hi to the old man who was gardening and pretty soon they started chatting and he was invited in for coffee and he had coffee with him. And he said, Tony, at the end of that day I finished the shift, the last. He said, I was on an absolute caffeine high. But he said, I could not have been happier because I knew that the calling that was upon my life was to give myself to the forgotten and the neglected and the ignored. He said, I could never go back into a classroom again when those are the people who dearly need my love and my care and my coffee. See, calling is such an exquisite part of our humanness. If I had to coin a phrase to describe it, I would say it's that essence of being. It's that thing that makes you gloriously unique. Alan Parr uh, gave this kind of vlog on different, the differentiating between a career and a calling. And he said a career uses your natural talents, but a calling uses your spiritual talents. And I'm not sure I entirely agree with him, but I think it's a good conversation to have. He said a career is all about pleasing your employer. But a calling is about pleasing God. He said a career is about something you can do, may even want to do. But a calling is something you must do. I was thinking this afternoon as I was preaching this to myself, washing the dishes, thinking of Darren and Sarah Jump in it's on the Silk Road in Kyrgyzstan and Turkey and Afghanistan. 40-year-old Americans who've called their ministry Live, Die, Silk Road because they will die there. Nothing about coming back to America is appealing to them. Because what they must do is they must be on the Silk Road. They must take Jesus to those who've never heard Him.
They must show the love of God to Muslims who've only ever experienced the dark, dank, demanding realities of a religion for which service is essential. A career is always changing, but a calling never changes. A career is about earthly rewards, but a calling is about eternal rewards. He said, a career is about advancing our company, but a calling is about advancing the kingdom. So what I want to do is I just want to take you to a passage of Scripture do something I don't often do, just open up the passage and let it speak for itself. And hopefully today, Galatians chapter 1, hopefully I can help you. Maybe you'll see just a little smidging of what God has for you. And if I can give you that gift, I would not be happier. I really don't mind if you remember my messages or illustrations. Or one day when you're in full flight and I'm singing with Jesus in the in the eternal dwelling place when we are whether it's up there or down here depending on your eschatology you'll be living way after me but if somehow this truth can grab your heart it would save you so much effort and energy and heartache and pain because it suddenly all makes sense okay so let's read galatians chapter one a life of calling and i'll pick up in verse 10 those of you who don't really know the scriptures, Galatians is a little book that Paul wrote to a particular community in Galatia, which is present-day Turkey, and he writes to them out of deep love and affection and concern for them that they were beginning to drift away from the true faith. And he said this, verse 10, Now, I am now trying, sorry, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I still trying to please people? If I'm still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of God. He, he, he takes two big cultural moments for you and me. Do I seek people's approval and do I seek people's pleasure, pleasing, affirmation? Pause for a moment. I ask myself as I ask you, if that's what drives you, you will always drift from calling. Calling is never anchored around people's approval and it's never anchored around people being pleased. I hate that about calling. I've sat at times with the Bible open in front of me knowing I've got to say something either to a group or to an individual. I know it will make me unpopular. I know it will anger people. I know people will gossip around me and do anything to make them look good. Have you ever heard of someone leaving a church because they've got a bad attitude? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard someone say, you know, actually I left the church because I'm a pain in the ass. That's why I left the church. No, 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 it's never that. It's, did you hear what Chris said? Can you believe what these guys are doing? Do you think that we're unaware of that? But then this scripture just percolates in our soul again, Chris. Do you want what pleases people? Do you want to do what gives people approval? And dear friend, that's not just my narrative, it's yours. Because there will be moments when walking with Jesus will cost you something. Tyler sent me an email, because part of this series, we're going to talk about sex and sexuality. And he, and he said to me, Chris, how are we going to approach this? 
Well, firstly, we're not going to approach it. I'm going to approach it. And, 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 and I hazard a guess. I will say things that will offend you. But, but you see, the sense of, am I seeking to please people or Jesus? And that by its very nature is countercultural. It is contrary to public opinion. I'm not going to win the Democratic or Republican vote for even if this election, the Dick Church parking lot election, because the nature of the gospel is contrary to our cultural moment. Are you with me? And if you are going to walk in your calling, it's not a cool, sexy thing we do at charismatic meetings. Prophesy over me so I can get my calling. It's the stark human reality that somewhere along the line, you will marry someone your parents won't approve of. You will take a job that culture says you're an idiot. Two of my closest friends were chartered accountants, spent years to become chartered accountants, were earning big bucks, one in London, one in South Africa. Big bucks, pounds and rands. And one day God spoke to both of them and walk away from all of this and I want you to pastor a church. At that stage for Rob, it wasn't a big church with tons of money. He smilingly said to me the other day, he was a partner with Deloitte in South Africa. He said, Chris, I'd be a very rich man today. He said, I have a massive house. I'd have at least a beach cottage, if not a cottage in the mountains. But I remember the day I had to go and say to my parents, you know you paid for me to become a chartered accountant. I'm leaving that because I'm taking over the leadership of a church of about 100 people in Durban. And my salary is going to be about a quarter. Calling is incredibly compelling. But it's not based around who you will please and for whom will you get approval. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I do not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God. He was a Pharisee. That was his career. That was his job. That's what he was meant to do. That's where people said, go for it, Paul. Get them in a prison. Get them killed. Get them persecuted. Boom, my man. I was advancing in Judaism. Man, I was rocking and rolling. I had a career path marked out for me. Beyond any of my age, I was way ahead of everyone else. Among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God. But when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, my immediate response. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Three years he went into the desert. We love speculating about what he did in the desert for three years. We don't know. And later I returned to Damascus. Three years later I went to Jerusalem to hang out with Peter. And then verse 24, they praised they praise God. Because of me. Wow. 
Can we just open that passage quickly? The first little verse that just grabs me is, But when God. It's that moment of divine arrestation. When God arrests me. I'll never forget. We were at Redemption. They were in the senior center. It was an Easter Sunday. And afterwards, we were all hanging out. Dana led worship that morning. And Meryl called me over. And I went across. She said, oh, I, I must introduce you to, these, to this couple. Uh, Australians who'd come out to plant a church. That didn't happen. But they ended up going to grad school, became, got a master's and then a PhD in marriage and family therapy. And she looked at me and she said, Babe, maybe that's what I should do. But you see, Meryl had always healed the brokenhearted. I got a text message this past week. Please can you fly to us somewhere in the world, but Meryl must come with. You see, in her essence of being, and many of you bet the benefit of when she talks to you, you feel like you are the center of the universe. Why? Because she's a nice person? Yeah, she is a pretty nice person. I've known her for 43 years. But way more than that, inside of her essence of being as a human, as a divine calling, where God got hold of her, and God seeded her with something Something profound that the brokenhearted are attracted to her, are drawn to her. Want a minute with Meryl. What that moment, it was a but when God moment. The Monday morning we went to Hope University. I said, sure, let's just go and check it out. We went to Hope. We walked in the front door, met the administrator. They showed us around the property and she said, well, I said, let's sign. And Meryl is super cautious and super slow and needs confirmation from everything and everyone. We sat in the car about 30 minutes later and she said, what have I done? What, what, what have I done? I said, baby, you just signed up to go to grad school at 52. It was a but when God moment. You see, because God is personal and He is intimate and He does communicate, dear friends. You are not, you and I are not just floating nebulous human beings without any sense of transcendence and importance. How do we hear God? We hear Him audibly. Debbie Jones, dear friend, was the regional manager for Estee Lauder, cosmetic company in South Africa. And she was flying in, servicing her regions when she was in a hotel in Port Elizabeth. And it was the evening, she sat down, she just wanted to read the Bible, and God began to speak to her audibly. I hate her. God has never spoken to me audibly. And He spoke slowly enough because she's a meticulous journaler, and she wrote every single word down as God spoke to her. Don't you want that to happen to you? I've kind of put my hand up and say, what about me? But you see, sometimes it's a small inaudible voice. It's a sense of, yeah, this, this, this is God. The, God is speaking to me now. Sometimes it's a scripture that jumps off the page at us. And suddenly, like me as an 18-year-old, Jeremiah chapter 1, God uses the words of the scripture as if He's speaking to us personally. Please don't go your whole life as if this Bible is purely a book of story. 
it is also an instrument of instruction from the Most High God directing us, coaching us, and speaking to us. How are you doing? Am I a little too intense tonight? Prophecy. It's a beautiful thing. Wonderful thing. Be very careful who you have lay their hands on you. I do. I'm unapologetic. If I'm not comfortable with someone, I'll say, please don't pray over me. I'm really not hassled if they're offended. But I trust the Holy Spirit speaking to me on the inside. Dreams, visions, a friend or a mentor who hears the voice of God. I'm listening. I'm looking for the but when God moment. A stranger has happened to me recently at Kit Coffee. An angel or just plain wisdom. But looking for that but when God moment. Number two, Paul carries on. He says, who set me apart, who set me apart. Do you know how beautiful those little words are? Who set me apart. It means that every one of us is specifically called in a way that's unique and different from anyone else. I don't have to compare myself. I never have to compete with anyone. I never have to feel, why did they get that job? I didn't get it. Why did they get the increase and I didn't get it? Because the who set me apart is a deep anchor point in my calling component. Have a look here at Judges. I don't know if you'll have time to rush there. I'll find it for you just in case. And in two moments in the book of Judges, Oh, by the way, do you know that John Mark announced today he's handing over his church? I'm sure you all know that. Tyler Stanton from New York is coming in to lead us. Okay, I'm preaching there next month. Anyone wants to come up with me? Right, here we go. Book of Judges, chapter 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, a wife of Lapidus, was leading Israel. Now was that career or was that calling? She was a prophet, a wife, and leading or judging Israel. Well, we know from the next chapter that was her job. Because her calling was, and I quote, until I arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. What was her calling? Deborah, I want you to be a mother. This is what I want you to be. God has set you apart to be a mother in Israel. That's what she sings about herself in chapter 5. But in chapter 4, we realize that being a mother included these things, that she was a prophet, that she was the wife of Lapidoth, and that she was leading or judging Israel at that time. What a remarkable woman that must have been. Can you imagine her insecurities? Israel had not had a woman lead her yet. Not in such a capacity. This was completely countercultural. This was not something that was the norm. And God breathed over this mother of Israel. I want you to be a mother, Deborah. Sure, I can do that. I'll stay at home, look after the kids, raise them up, grow them, you know, take care of their homework and make sure that they eat well, are healthy and don't watch too much iPhone. God, oh, no. No. See, Deborah, part of your job is to be a prophet. Oh, you so say, mean I'm going to have to pray and wait on you and hear your voice? Oh, yeah. Oh, and don't forget you're a wife as well because your husband won't be neglected because 
you're a prophet and oh that's right I want you to lead Israel you see calling is not career a career can change I was a soldier a school teacher a church planter leader of a church planting movement all job changes but the calling never changes chapter 6 here's Gideon good old Gideon angel comes to Gideon he's hiding in a wine press and what does the angel say to him the Lord is with you you mighty warrior what is his calling his calling is to be a mighty warrior Gideon says heck no buddy you got this all wrong that's not who I am that's not what I do that's not my dream for my life can I pause there for a moment I feel like I'm rushing but I I want to land in some of these things culture says you must dream big culture lies culture says you must study and get a degree in a job that can get you improvement a bigger car a bigger house a boat on Newport and your kids can go to Stanford UCLA US USB slow not that's a lie don't you love God I landed here at 38 I didn't even know there was such a thing as a college fund I've got two kids they are 10 and 8 I haven't got a hope in Hades to get a college fund going to take care of their college funds uh, college costs not a hope in Hades so I start with this Merrill Lynch representative and she sits there very sharp gal very ready to, to, for action and I said, I'd like to start a college fund. And she looks at this 38-year-old. She says, sure. How much do you want to put in? I said, 100 bucks. I think she swallowed a pen. You know, it's like, <laughs> surely you made 1,000 bucks. You know, look at you. You're an old guy. You're 38. You don't start a college fund. I said, no, 100. That's all I can afford. But you see, in God's wisdom, my eldest daughter got married, didn't go to college till now. She graduates from the University of Notre Dame, Australia in July as a nurse. Dana went to Biola and God provided, we paid cash for her course. I prayed in every semester's amount. Put Merrill through grad school, then Tion goes to college. I suddenly remember, I think I've got a college fund. So I get hold of the guy now who's, who's running my, I said, how much do I have? I think it was all of like a year's worth or something. Okay, that's fine. We'll take it one moment at a time. Because you see, God called me. And God would therefore take care of the little details. Capiche? Okay. Let's move on. God has, when God has set me apart, unique, specific, crafted especially from my mother's womb. Listen, all of you vulnerable, broken people. I was thinking today whether I should let my folks see this part. They probably will. See, my dad's dad died when he was 12. He was a minor. My dad was one of eight kids. They were as poor as you could imagine. In Africana culture, when the family is big and there's no provision, you send two or whatever number of kids off to a family member who will raise the kids. So my dad's teenage years were spent delivering post by day and going to high school at night. 
He left home at 6 o'clock in the morning and he got back 11 o'clock at night at 14, 15, 16, 17. And then he became a tradesman. A blue collar guy. My mother never finished high school. They would say, oh, Chris, surely that's not the kind of family a thinker, philosopher, preacher should grow up in. Oh, it's a really good one. It's a really good one. Because you see, my father put into me a gutsiness that you run that danger. My father put into me a tenacity that you don't bow down no matter what the odds are against you. John Mark's got tattooed on his, on his arm here, never tell me the odds. And that was kind of my dad's philosophy. Never tell me the odds. We'll do this, whatever this may be. And so I can carry on. Because you see, folks, we can look at the brokenness of our, of our family systems and feel that somehow we are, are, are um, defeated by it. Oh, if only I grew up in that person's family. If only I grew up in that. I had a, Meryl and I had a couple come and see us last week. His dad died in a car accident when he was six. His mother never remarried. Went off to a Catholic boarding school where he was sexually abused. Met a girl who became his girlfriend whom he married and he thought, well, thank goodness, eventually a family. But as broken as could be. With all sorts of issues. You see, what we can do is from my mother's womb. My calling is not contingent on me having this gorgeously well-defined and, 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 and uh, well-taken-care-of family experience. God will use our family of origin, our mother's womb, to shape us, craft us, form us, ready us for the calling that lies before us. Are you with me? If time allowed, I could tell you how I have found grace for my family of origin story and that's how it's helped me and broken me. There are parts of me that are deeply broken by my family of origin. But you see, dear friends, in this calling thing comes this from my mother's womb bit. My father wanted a businessman. He got a poet. He wanted a tough, strong construction man. He got a musician. See, I wasn't what he thought he would get. But God knew I got what I needed. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb. All right, I've got to move on quickly. What is the time? Oh, my word. You okay? Now you can see why I'm so passionate about this. I want you to get it. I want you to feel it. I want you to discern it. I want you to sense it. I want you to be able to write your calling in five words. Set in order what's lacking. That's me. That's me. I can't help it. I walk into a family and I can tell you within five minutes what's wrong with it. I see it as like a movie. I've had people say to me, you don't know me, but you've just read my mail. I had an elder from one of the biggest churches in town have lunch with me the other day and he chatted away and I looked at him and I said, I won't mention his name, I said, can I tell you what I see? He said, sure. And I read him his mail. He starts weeping. He said, no one has ever told me that. Even I could not explain it. 
So I can't help that. It's not because I'm clever. It's because I can see what needs to be said in order. Those are my five words. Okay, moving on quickly, and I'm going to have to leave some of this out, sadly. By His grace, I cannot leave that out. It's His sovereign selection, not your dreams. God just chose you. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's His divine empowerment, not my talents. I've stood on many a platform. Honestly, this is my story. Forgive me for many personal analysis. But I've stood on many platforms. Preached around the world. And I'm sitting there. I'm looking at the people I'm about to address. Thinking, what on earth am I doing here? Hong Kong. Singapore. Taichung. Missouri. New Delhi. Auckland. Melbourne. Perth. Sydney. Brisbane. So I can go on. What the hell? It's by His grace. It's by a divine empowerment in which He eternally creates and orchestrates my life. It's not my genius, my connections. It's His cosmic plan, not my manipulations. It's His kind promotion, not my cultural narrative. Are you with me? That's what I love about this. It's got so little to do with me but obedience. Please take this little phrase with you tonight. It's your obedience. We all reach crossroad moments. I'll never forget the afternoon. I got a call in South Africa. We were moving here to plant a church here in Costa Mesa, 1996, 25 years ago. I got my kids into a school. I had a team of 15 flying in from around the world to join me. And I got a call from a broken church 40 minutes from here. Would you come and lead us? I said, Whoa, that's come out the blue. How much time do I have? Three hours. They need to know in three hours. Meryl and I took the girls for a walk through a nature reserve. We got chased by a warthog. I thought, is that a sign? I should have known it was a sign. We were looking for cloud formations to see if God would... I mean, you know how silly you get when you're that desperate to hear God? We were looking for anything and everything. And as the clock was ticking and my phone was in my hand, we sat together, prayed on the bed, and I said, Babe, what is it? What do you think? And she said, I've only got one word from God. And the word was, I will surprise you. This has surprised us. I said, okay, we'll take it. I called and said, we'll go and lead that church. 14 years. Tough, brutal years. 25 years later, we're planting the church we could have or should have planted then. Instant obedience. Instant obedience. Oh, there's so much to say. Beautiful things to say. As I said to you, Meryl's call is to bind up the brokenhearted. Yesterday she was on a call. A friend of hers turned 50 from New York. And she was on a Zoom call with a number of ladies from all over celebrating her 50th birthday. Do you know what she did? 
on the Zoom call. She was binding up a broken hearted because it was a 50 year old woman whose deep desire was to get married and she was still single. Bind up the broken hearted. Dana's, I think, is to set the captives free. Dana was performing in uh, West LA at the House of Blues on Wilshire. And I went along to hear her play. Room was packed. Very proud of my girl, as you can well imagine. Music is loud. Scotch is flowing. I'm standing at the door, and this woman walks in, and she says, Who's this? I say, Dana J. And she said, Oh, I've never heard of her before. She said, But it's interesting. When I hear her music, I feel like my soul opens. I feel like something gets set free inside of her. I wanted to look at her and say, lady, what you don't understand is that's her anointing. See, her anointing operates not when she leads worship, but when she speaks and lives and does worship. Because that's what calling does. Are you with me, folks? To reveal his son in me. I land with this. The key thing is about Jesus. See, the calling is when something about Jesus gets revealed to us. Remember what, uh, whatever the guy's name was, Alan, something or other. Remember what he said? It's something we must do. When as an 18-year-old, I read Jeremiah chapter 1, and it said that I would be a prophet to the nations. Now, I'm not a prophet in the classic sense of the word. I'm more of an ecclesiological prophet. But I'll be that to the nations of the world. I remember preaching in Missouri, India, up in the Himalayas, in the, in the province of Uttar Pradesh. It was a Sunday morning, it was cold, I was struggling to get out of bed, and I'm just lying there saying, Lord, what do you want me to say? And he said, oh, you can't speak this morning. What do you mean? You're a racist. I said, no, I'm not a racist. Oh, you're a racist. Have you thought of your jokes about Indian people? Ah, oh, they just jokes. I said, oh no, you're a racist. And you can't get up to speak my word in front of them while racism rages in your heart. I said, Lord, what must I do? He said, get on your knees. It was a cold floor. It was the time of the, um, uh, uh, not the tsunami, monsoon. monsoon. Everything was wet. And I got on my knees in that cold cement floor, cement floor and I wept before God. I said, I repent. I am so sorry that I let humor hide my inner racism. Would you forgive me? When I preached that morning, I felt like the presence of God was there in a fresh way. How could I speak his word? How could I bring Jesus to them if I actually didn't know what Jesus felt about them? Mother Teresa was on a train, 1956 was it? Ready for a summer vacation when God met with her. And Jesus spoke to her about his heart for the poor girls, the underprivileged girls in Calcutta. And she realized then her calling, her true calling, 
was to heal these girls and to give them hope. And she spent the rest of her life in the broken, dark, dank city where women were dispensed of, used and thrown away in a hierarchical system. And she gave them hope, freedom. See, when you meet Jesus and you get a part of his heart, you have to do that. Nothing else will ever satisfy. I close with this story. There's more to say, but... A young Indian man from Mumbai reached out to me. He said, can we Zoom together? Salvam and I Zoomed this past week. Beautiful young man, single ladies for those of you interested. Great songwriter, he's translated a number of Hillsong songs into Tamil or Hindi. Loves Jesus. Loves Jesus. I sat there looking at times, I didn't know his father was a Hindu, his mother was a Hindu, and God saved them dramatically. And I sat there listening to this young man, Chris, can you help us? Not monetary, there was none of that. I want to plant a church, will you teach me how? I said, Selvam, I can try. But you see, many years ago, in monsoon season, Missouri Entrepreneurs, I had to get on my knees and repent. Had I not, that phone call this week would never have happened. My calling would have been stymied and stunned because I hid my racism beyond my humor. I love humor. But is your humor hiding your own brokenness? Then maybe God wants to heal that humor, keep you humorous, but heal it. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I look across this parking lot, this final few moments of this curious chapter in our lives. My mind and my imagination wants to run riot when I think of Will, when I think of Shannon, when I think of Callie, when I think of Jordan, when I think of Harry, where will they be when I'm long gone? Will their life be an ever-increasing expression of Jesus' life? Has something about Jesus grabbed their soul? And maybe they didn't always understand. Maybe, maybe they thought they were just rebels. But actually, behind that rebel was the call of God being nurtured. As you have by your Spirit impregnated them with an eternal calling. I think of the times I wanted to be like everyone else. I just wanted to be normal. I wanted to be accepted. I, I just wanted to... Be like every other Jesus lover, but your calling never allowed me to be that. And your calling will not allow them to be that either. Now I ask, would you meet with us tonight in this silly little parking lot so generously provided for us? But when... God.
Would you affirm callings that are being lost? Would you confirm callings that are being discovered? And will you empower callings that are being beckoned? I thank you for these remarkable men and women. Now I'm going to ask this of you. I'm done. And I know it's been a long evening. Thank you for being gracious. Hopefully our stories and just loving on Tim made the extra length worthwhile. Please don't go tonight if God is pounding away in your chest without someone praying for you. Don't go. Don't go. These are sublime moments. I don't know what part of tonight's message was new to you. None of it might be. Some of it might be. But wherever God the Holy Spirit was just nestling in, nestling in. For some of you, you feel like your calling has been forfeited. You've lost it. I don't think we can. Because it started in our mother's womb and it will end in our own too. Ben, that's pretty good. You can write that in your notes, Ben. That's a good line right there. It's not gone. Might be slowed down. You might have missed some opportunities. But it's not done. Pick it up tonight. Hold it like a treasured child. Hold it tight. It will define you. For the rest of your life. I miss my parents. Spoke to my brother this week. You know what? I just want to go and have a game of golf with him in South Africa. I just want to go and ride bikes on the Durban promenade along the beachfront. I want to talk rugby to him. It'll probably never happen. Not on a permanent basis. But there's a higher drive. And that's obedience to the call of God, no matter what the price tag must be. Thank you. You've been incredibly gracious tonight. I so appreciate that. We look forward to being in the courtyard next Sunday. See what that new chapter has. But don't go if you need someone to pray for you. God bless you all. You're amazing. Love you.